Welcome to the Finding Freedom podcast, a new podcast dedicated to empowering all stakeholders to learn about, discuss, and disrupt global human trafficking with your hosts, Sherry Caltadroni and Corey Marshall. Child sexual abuse material, known legally as child pornography, refers to any content that depicts sexually explicit behavior involving a child. These could be photos, videos, or computer-generated images that are so realistic that you can't tell they're fake. Thorne, a leader in technology and research to end online child sexual abuse and exploitation, sadly notes that reports of CSAM, child sexual abuse material, have increased over 15,000% in the last 15 years. In 2004, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NICMIC, reviewed 450,000 child sexual abuse files. In 2019, that number was 70 million. There is no doubt that technology exacerbates child sexual abuse, as is evident in live streaming, pay-to-watch abuse, and the rapidly rising challenges of self-generated abuse imagery. But technology is also essential armory in efforts to combat it. In today's episode of Finding Freedom, we will be discussing the online world of child exploitation with our distinguished guests, Matt Burns and Dave Ranner, from our partners and friends at Camera Forensics. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. No problem at all. Can you share with us a little bit about Camera Forensics' mission and goals? Yeah, sure. So Camera Forensics, um, we're a small tech company in the UK. Fundamentally, our core mission is whatever it takes, whatever we can do to help law enforcement tackle the problem of online child sexual abuse. We try and make all our company decisions based on what we think the impact will be on on our ability to, to safeguard children or to help and the authorities safeguard children. And that's so like effectively our, our North Star as a business. Um, and it, it actually makes decision making incredibly easy when you've got that sort of like clear metric of what you think success looks like. It's not just a kind of a marketing thing. Like we kind of pin numbers to the wall. And, um, and you know, there are times when we have a decision. We go, oh, should we try this or that? And then we think, oh, well, which one is more likely to help the most kids? And, and then, it's, then it becomes much easier to make decisions. Um, yes, we are a profit making company, but. It turns out that it's quite easy to run a business this way um, if, if, you, if you just do the right thing. So, so Matt, that's, that's actually really refreshing to hear because there are a lot of companies that believe doing the right thing and making a profit have to be mutually exclusive. Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, structured your business so that you could achieve both objectives at the same time? Yeah, well, so to go back right to the very start, when it was just me, I was very fortunate to... Well, there's a few things. So, so in the in the early few years, financially, I was lucky to have a bit of financial independence in in order to do what I felt was right, and that was literally the only motivation. It was like making money wasn't a personal goal of mine. It was like, you know, as as with anyone, people make money so that they can have fun, and this was just a shortcut to having fun. It's like kind of doing something rewarding, enjoying what you do every day, feeling that kind of adrenaline rush of actually having some kind of impact is is addictive it's purely selfish i'm not any kind of hero or martyr any of this nonsense it's it's all selfish <laughs> and it's purely because i find it really enjoyable and it's just kind of grown that way i will certainly not begrudge you that type of selfishness <laughs> dave how do you see this playing out on your side of the business i'm the guy who has to make sure that we we meet payroll every month we're fortunate that we've quite quickly built uh, a really strong international network via institutions like Interpol and what have you. And we quickly met people in law enforcement who were very supportive of what we were doing. And it, it felt like, as Matt said, if we were out there doing the right thing, then revenue would follow. 
and the, these people out there internationally in law enforcement like what we were doing and made sure that we, we could make payroll every month. We also have some really good sort of opportunities and contracts within the UK and the US where we um, do sort of research and development services in, in this particular area. And again, we feed back profit from that into developing our products, which again, um, help, you know, help, help um, law enforcement identify victims and, and safeguard children. So in the early days, I think it's worth a bit of a shout out to Innovate UK, um, which is the UK so like quasi-autonomous non-government organisation that funds risky research. And we were very fortunate to get a grant from them in the early days that let us develop some of the technology. I remember when I was in your office this spring, seeing those numbers that you talked about, Matt, that you had posted on the board, and it was sort of a real ring the bell sort of moment when each of us in this space, because it actually can be difficult and emotionally taxing work, can't it? Um, we're all motivated. I think we have to hone in on exactly that. Like, why are we here? What is the mission that's driving us to accomplish these ends? Uh, and I've always been a fan of your work and some of the really cool, innovative things that you're doing over at Camera Forensics. Can you share a little bit more uh, specifically about some of the tech that you have developed or what problems you're looking to solve with some of them? Yeah, sure. So the core product, the very first thing, um, which is the main camera forensic sort of search engine, is is a search engine. So in the same way that Google um, tried to bring structure and order to the internet in terms of the text that's posted and they're, they're searching and allowing you to find the answers to your questions, we're doing the same thing but for media and so primarily imagery, so that when law enforcement are trying to identify or try to um, safeguard children that that are in images of child abuse, we can help them kind of build a bigger picture and try to, try to really understand how images um, first appeared online, who's who's sharing them, who's, you know, the, these kinds of questions. So it's just a search engine that's very tailored to the specific use case. So that's the main thing that we do at Camera Forensics. What trends do you see currently in online child exploitation? How are you and other stakeholders addressing these challenges? I, I think it's firstly important to recognise that we as technology and tool providers, we're not at the coalface, we're not law enforcement, we're not seeing this on a day-to-day -day basis. So some of what I'm going to talk about is a little bit secondhand. We, we, we support the people doing the real work, essentially. I don't think it's sensationalising to say that any technology or platform will be exploited by people who have an interest in exploiting children. We, we've heard stories from people running platforms that you would not imagine would have this sort of thing going on, but, but they do. They all do to varying degrees. In terms of what, what, what we're hearing about, I think... We're hearing more about coerced abuse. That would be children live streaming from their bedrooms, um, abusers, um, so like building their trust, getting the children to commit various acts on camera. I think if one's naive, it's very easy to say, oh, well, it's not contact abuse. It's not that bad. But I, I, I think that's immensely wrong. It's, it's, it is still abuse. It is, it is emotionally and psychologically awful. Um, the pictures that the abusers take will live on on the internet forever, and that's something the victim has to live with. So I guess coming back to your original question, yeah, more, more coerced abuse online. In terms of what interventions we're seeing around that, I mean, they they range from a one-end education, and I, I, I'm always in two minds about education in that you're sort of like putting the onus on the victim to make sure they don't become a victim, um, but... I, I, I think education is nonetheless important. Um, there's some good technology out there um, that some companies are developing that will 
watch a live feed and say to a child, you know, are you sure you want to be doing this? Are you sure you want to share this with someone? You know, here, here are the implications of what, of, of what you're doing. And, you know, so like that's artificial intelligence will detect nudity or, or coercive behaviour or, or, or what have you. And then you've got through, through to other interventions by the platforms themselves. And uh, I think we could probably talk more about this later, but fundamentally these platforms are themselves making money out of the traffic on the website, sort of on, on, on the platforms. And so fundamentally these platforms are making money out of, you know, people using them for this purpose. And, and I think so, so some platforms are doing a great job of trying to stop this. Some are doing a half-hearted job. Some aren't even trying at all. So, so I, I think there's more work to be done there. And then, of course, at the very sharp end, you, you, you have the police who are, you know, coming to the party late in that it's after the, the offences have occurred and trying to find victims, safeguard victims, and obviously find offenders. So, so Dave, you just touched on a number of really interesting dynamics that are having to be navigated in the child exploitation space. I mean, you touched on everything from privacy to regulatory restrictions um, and, and other similar types of challenges. How have you guys been navigating some of those challenges given that, for example, some of the platform companies are hiding behind existing regulations, especially in the U.S.? Uh, the Communications and Decency Act has um, provided a shield for some of those folks um, for a number of years. Um, and at the same time, the privacy legislation that is trying to protect the identities and the personally identifiable information of those that are navigating on the web. And then you also have the intersection with obviously children in this space. So can you tell me, can you tell us a little bit about how you're navigating those various cross currents with law enforcement, with uh, policymakers, et cetera? I think one of the sort of like narratives that we see a lot is it's child protection versus privacy and that you can have one or the other. And, and I think it's important to reframe that in that child protection is about children's privacy. So it's not one or the other. And I, I, I don't think you know, we, we have to choose between the two. In terms of the legislative framework, I mean, I, I can talk more about the UK, I think, um, than anywhere else because it's what we're more familiar with. We, we do have to be very careful as a business because fundamentally our tools are designed to de-anonymise perpetrators and to help victims. And there's a lot of um, legislation within the UK and Europe to try and, you know, stop stop that happening. And for, and for very good reason, people people deserve privacy. So we've been working a lot around the GDPR and Data Protection Act regulations to, to try and deal with that and to say what is our legitimate interest in the data we're, for the data we're collecting. Our approach on that is to say the legitimate interest is based around protecting children and therefore that supersedes um, not, not people's privacy but it allows us to collect that data for this very very specific purpose. Absolutely. I mean, that seems like a compelling public interest to me. How is law enforcement and how are policymakers responding to that position? Law enforcement, I think they want the tools. You know, they want to be able to fight and safeguard victims. Um, we, we see internationally, the reactions are quite different. Some countries are more, give me this tool, I'm going to use it, we'll ask forgiveness later. Some are understandably cautious around privacy. Um, but I don't think we've ever hit a situation where a law enforcement agency will not use our tools. 
Yeah, and just just to add to some of those points that Dave made. So the legit, legitimate interest thing is really important, but basically making sure that we continually check and assess that it's proportionate and what things can be put in place to make sure things are proportionate and it's appropriate. Um, so like privacy is an example. Everyone has an entitlement to privacy, but it's, it's the victims and the offenders in the sense that, or, or just general internet users, have certain levels of rights. And it's when one person's privacy infringes on another person's privacy. So... You know, it's where you draw the line between these two. For law enforcement, so for example, in the UK, coming soon is the requirement they will have to supply justification for why they perform certain searches. So there's a kind of, you know, there's a trail to say, well, that's why they were able to do certain things. Um, And also legislatively in the EU, coming soon are the DMA and the DSA, which are the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. So Digital Services Act is the more interesting one, I guess, because as a platform, as a, as a kind of media provider like Facebook or Microsoft or whoever, rather than it being voluntary reporting and, and policing their networks and making sure that they're providing safe a safe environment for children, it becomes illegally enforced. It's not voluntary. It's saying, well, if, if you are going to create this online playground, it's up to you to make it safe, just like it would be in a real world playground. And so legislation is definitely catching up. I'm, I'm really positive. People like to talk kind of doom and gloom on these trends, but Things are going in the right direction. Uh, again, pulling it back to trends a little bit. Yes, it can seem like the crime is increasing and you know the way that the, the modus operandi, the way that offenders behave might be shifting in different things, but there's some great stuff in terms of lifting the rock and shining a light on these things that was never previously done. And so there's a huge amount of good work being done by tech companies that we should be applauding and celebrating and encouraging more of. There are good things to be done, and there's certainly lots of room for collaboration. And obviously, it's in everyone's best interest to keep technology companies and their efforts on side and working together to save every last victim. But at the same time, you have to shine a light at the failures. I know I've shared with some of you this really difficult conversation that I had with a parent somewhat recently uh, whose daughter had been blackmailed in essentially the exact same way that Dave mentioned and was uh, made to take pictures of herself. And uh, she ended up trying to take her own life because the pictures keep resurfacing online. And this has been one of the challenges that I think that we have in this space, uh, that there's the idea that once material like this goes online, it lives online forever. And each time somebody else opens those images or watches that video, uh, it's like re-victimizing that child again. But at the same time, we also know that there's other technology that exists that allows for immediate removals of other content, so other particularly around copyright materials. So where do you think, Matt, the balance between those lie? Is it really true that once material goes online, it will live there forever? No, absolutely. Um, uh, it's something I believe really strongly about, actually. It's, it's, it's unacceptable that we kind of shrug our shoulders, or lots of people kind of shrug their shoulders and say, oh, once it's online, it's online, it's, it's too late, there's nothing you can do. As you hinted with copyright material, you know, if this was pay-per-view boxing or the next big Hollywood blockbuster, or even something very kind of grotesque, you know, there's, there's lots of other material that seems to get pulled very quickly and is very hard to find online. So it's definitely possible, but for some reason, the attention the same amount of effort and energy isn't poured into child abuse material. For me, it's just a question of when. For how much longer are we going to tolerate that this stuff still proliferates? And uh, when's it going to stop? Because it, ha- it will stop. It's not, it's not going to carry on forever. And who's going to be the first person to make sure it stops? 
What about some other exciting developments that you know about? What it gets you motivated right now to work on? What are those really gnarly and difficult problems that you're taking on? And don't be afraid to jump into the technical weeds. This is what we're really talking about. The fact that the technology exists, but it's just not yet being put to use broadly. Sure. So a lot of the problems that people in working in this area kind of face is the volumes of data, the amount of material you have to go through and grade or look at and intercept, whatever. And it just becomes like this impossible avalanche of work to do that feels insurmountable. Obviously, lots of great minds have been working on ways to be more efficient with the human effort and human resource in terms of how you, how you detect it, how you prevent the spread of it, and how you surface it from large collections. So there's lots of good stuff. Lots of different people are trying to perfect machine learning algorithms that are capable of analyzing images and video and determine if it's illegal, how serious it is, how contemporary it is, or how risky it is, these kinds of things. These, I think, show great promise in terms of how you can more effectively use law enforcement's time. I get very inspired by working with our users. And Cherry, you and I have been very lucky to work together on a project doing exactly that, where we've supplied a tool to victim identification officers in the UK to to help them identify victims. And, And it's probably worth taking a bit of a step back on that. Um, victim identification is what we call sort of like the, the discipline and process around actually finding and locating children in abuse images. So if an image comes up online and it's believed to be new, that, ch- that this picture's not been seen before, we're pretty sure the child within it has not been safeguarded. It's what clues, what little bits of threads can we pull at to try and help law enforcement locate that child? And, you know, this crime type doesn't respect borders. It, it could be a undercover police officer in, in, in Australia working on tour has found this image and it might come from South America. There's absolutely no sort of like geographical correlation between who's working on these things and, and where the children might be. And so I really, really am inspired by creating tools that help law enforcement locate those children. Um, Unfortunately, we can't talk too much about them because obviously talking about them in a public forum tips off offenders and they they do share tradecraft. There there are manuals online um, that offenders share to say how to avoid these sorts of detection techniques, which is why we can't talk about it too much. But but for me, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is making these tools, giving them to our users, our, our victim ID officers, and then hearing back a week later from one of them saying, I used your tool and I identified a child. We arrested someone and that child is now safe. Now, Dave, I think you just put your finger on something that's very, very interesting. And that's the division of priority and effort that's being placed on this issue from different sides of the equation. Those folks that are operating and sharing images and making money off of these are sharing information. They are coordinated in the way that they operate. They are very well organized. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and the different types of things that you're seeing versus the defensive posture that's being taken by some of the, the various, um, whether it's law enforcement agency, NGOs, or others, and how that affects how the issue is being addressed? In terms of how the offenders operate, it's, it's very easy with these sorts of discussions to get too focused on the offenders sort of like at the pit, pinnacle of their offending pathway and technological prowess. You know, the, the ones who are operating out there on tour, who have really, really, I hate to say the word good, but really strong trade craft, who know how to avoid detection. Because for every one of those, there are a hundred who are 
not that good and you know are doing things that will get them caught and, and spotted and you know themselves the attention of law enforcement but but yeah the ones that that that, that pinnacle of sort of like offending I, I i've heard them described as a harder sort of like technological adversary than some of the terrorists that our um, security services have to deal with in terms of their their capability and competence the other side of the equation the law enforcement there is actually an amazing network of law enforcement officers around the world working on this stuff um we're talking both formal networks across the world, um, run by the likes of Interpol and Europol, but also informal networks of people who who have met at conferences, know each other very well, and they know who to call to to get something actioned on it in a different geographic area. Hope they won't mind me repeating this phrase, but there, there's someone working in this area who, who always talks about it takes a network to defeat a network, and I, I think that that rings very true. And it's about that coordinated response, that coordinated effort through both law enforcement, but also platform providers, NGOs, academia, tech companies like us, you know, it is through that combined effort that, 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 that we, can, we can beat this, I think. Like, you know, collaboration is key. Another kind of slight kind of tangent here, but another thing that I think is fascinating is how what people often describe it as an arms race between, you know, good, goodies and baddies or whatever, and it sort of gets simplified as technology evolves and tradecraft and changes and these kinds of things but in practice it's more like it's more like every other crime if you think of murders and things from the 70s or whatever that went unsolved for decades and are still being solved now because of advances in dna or other kind of forensic techniques it's exactly the same in this area there is constantly new methods and techniques to catch these people and they must know that they must like kind of live in fear of the knock on the door and uh, it doesn't matter how good, like Dave was saying, the people at the top of the pyramid or whatever, um, doesn't matter how good they are today or tomorrow. Any any crimes they've committed could still be solved at any point in the future um, and hopefully brought, brought to justice. Just to press on this issue a little bit more, it's interesting the dynamics that that you're describing here, because a little earlier in the conversation, you talked about how the technology is there to be able to combat this and some of the coordination may not be how are the perverse economic incentives continuing to fuel the problem? So economically, for the people trading this online for financial gain, they may be making money from advertising or from membership or whatever. I'm not really sure. You know, people that are doing it with financial incentive, the trick then is to disrupt the behavior before they break even. So whenever they publish a website online or they, they, they initiate something, there's going to be some costs involved buying domains, setting up servers, these kinds of things. So the faster you can take these things down, get things blocked, get things stopped, then ideally you can do it before they even break even. And then they, once they, if, if they can't make money at all, then they won't even start the next time. So, In our space, we've developed something that we call the human trafficking kill chain, which is based on a military concept that was extended into the cyber domain by Lockheed Martin. That was something that they call the cyber kill chain. And what it really is, is breaking down an adversarial process and what it is that they both need from an asset perspective and what phases they go through in order to achieve the the end. And obviously there's an overlap between online child sexual abuse and human trafficking and modern slavery. And it's amazing to me how much that kill chain actually holds true here from recruitment to transportation, brokering, exploitation in the online abuse space. Obviously, recruitment looks a little bit like grooming. 
And that is an opportunity to stop them before they break even, as you said, Matt. Uh, transportation, in this case, wouldn't really talk about physical transportation across a border or whatnot, especially since the internet is borderless. There's a digital process that happens in this space, and that's really where the ESPs come into play. And it's, again, another opportunity to block exploitation. What you were talking about, Matt, I think as well, in terms of those online you know, financial incentives and where they meet you know, consumer demand, uh, would be that brokering step. I was interested in that as well. Where do you find the majority of this data? Is it open source? Is it deep web? Are they really hanging out on Tor networks? Um, or is it maybe some combination of the above? Well, so actually for Cam Forensics, we don't fetch or knowingly kind of scrape or search the illegal material. We very much try to stay in the kind of... Uh, open web domain and is, is trying to connect the two, allowing law enforcement to connect the two. I suppose that makes sense from a uh, obvious legal perspective about just the particular dangers of this sort of data. Yeah, we're very careful from both a legal perspective and a welfare perspective and all these kinds of things. It's just, there's, for us, there's no need. And, and anecdotally, I mean, we've heard tell of, it's very easy to think, oh, this only happens on, on the dark web, you know, with people who you know, download the Tor browser and use that, but but in reality, there is a there is an awful lot on the on the clear web, um, and that's what the Canadian Centre for Child Protection are going after. Yeah, it's 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 not all people using clever tech to to share it and and hide it. There, there an awful lot is going on in in plain sight, including on some very well known social media platforms. There's a bit of a myth that the majority of the sort of content is only traded and displayed on these dark corners of the web, when in reality, it's the sort of websites where our own children are going to be groomed, where you and I could accidentally encounter these that, you know, people who know exactly what they're looking for very easily can find it as well. But majority is actually on the clear web. Exactly. I made that sort of like sensationalist statement earlier in, in, in our discussion that any platform out there will be exploited in some way or form for this purpose. Yeah, and there's also, for example, in the pattern of coercion, they may be completely benign websites that are targeted for children. They're very clear and public and transparent and all that. And then you'll have offenders attempting to off-platform them, basically trying to lure them to a different messenger app or whatever, something where they, they can take them out of that kind of somewhat safer environment and into something somewhere else um, where they're more likely to go undetected. But of course, there is behavior there in the first place that, that could be detected. What are the responsibilities of those platforms that are providing some of those secure messaging or communications or chatting tools? And what are some of the options that they have available for doing the types of monitoring or scanning that camera forensics and other companies can do to help maintain the safety of their platform? From my perspective, I feel like the responsibility is to society and to humanity and to people as a whole and so any kind of messenger platform for example that that says oh it's very important to protect the privacy of our users by encrypting all conversation for example is absolutely entitled to say that as long as they are also including the privacy and safety and security of anyone who is whose abuse is being facilitated by their platform they have to take that whole picture and as long as they're balancing that out, then show me the working and then that can lie them, you know, I don't mind. But if, if they're only considering, if, if they're using sort of end-to-end encryption as a way of absolving themselves of any responsibility, then obviously not okay. 
I mean, there's been a lot of expectation, I think, on these platforms to self-regulate since their inception and for uh, up to now. And I think there are a lot of people arguing internationally that self-regulation hasn't worked. Um, I'm not expert enough to offer a strong opinion either way, but there, there are certainly people I respect who are who are arguing that self, self-regulation self isn't working and it needs to be legislative now. But that creates a whole extra problem, which is there is no international legislation. So if you if you make life hard for these platforms in one country, they'll just up sticks and go somewhere else. Um, so that's also something that needs to be you know very, very carefully considered. I think it's also important to draw out that as we are bolstering and arming uh, tech companies' efforts in this space as well, which is generating millions of reports to NCMEC every year, that going back to your point, Dave, what that means is that those NCMEC reports turn into referrals to law enforcement agencies. And if we have millions of those reports coming in the pipeline, you know how many are coming back out as well. And if we don't have the right tools that we're equipping law enforcement with from a, you know, a data triage and workflow perspective, then uh, continuing to stuff the fire hose doesn't really do anything. No, no, that, that, that is, of course, very true. And just a bit of an aside on that, um, I, I also think it's problematic when you get to like certain elements of media saying, oh, look, X, Y, and Z site has reported this many, you know, child abuse images this year. That's awful. They've got a problem. They've got far less of a problem than the, the next platform along that's not reporting anything because they're just not checking. Those sorts of reports and stories don't exactly do anything to motivate companies to do the right thing, do they? Okay, let's add something different, a little pointed here. What is something that you guys are excited about in terms of the technology or research entering this space? Where are the pockets of potential that we're not seeing yet? So for me, we joke about where we will be in 10 years and that kind of thing. And I'm a massive optimist and we can definitely solve this problem to the point where our business no longer needs to exist. I feel like the 10 years is eons in, uh, in, in technology. And if the big kind of operate, operating system levels, if the Androids, Apples and Microsofts of the world combined to prevent the decoding of illegal material, for example, on their platforms or or display technology. There's lots of interception points where you don't have to you don't have to violate people's privacy to completely make it impossible to trade this kind of material online. I feel like this will look back from the future, this period in history, as a strange one where it was possible. So that's what I'm excited by. Yeah, and I, I think think you've hit on something, Matt, which is I'm not convinced when when you come down to it that it's actually a technology problem. It's about willingness to, 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 to solve it. I think people would like it to be a technology problem because then they don't have to worry about it themselves, but I, I think it isn't. Count me as one that agrees with you on that. I think the technology is there. The political and other will is not. Yet. Maybe it's not yet. The job that we all have in this space is to work ourselves out of that job. Well, thank you both very much, Matt and Dave from Camera Forensics, for joining us today on the podcast. I wish you luck in everything that you're trying to do. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Finding Freedom with Sherry Calpadroni and Corey Marshall. A special thanks to our guests, Matt Burns and Dave Ranner from Camera Forensics. Interested in learning more? Please check out our website at www.globalemancipation.ngo or navigate to www.cameraforensics.com for more information on their life-saving efforts to combat online child sexual exploitation and provide much-needed victim identification tools.